Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Welcome to Women on the Line, a national women's current affairs program produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Anya Saravanan. Women on the Line acknowledges this program is produced and presented on the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge elders past, present and becoming, as well as the owners of the land you're hearing us from. On the 30th of June 2020, the Victorian government had announced a lockdown of specific hotspot suburbs in an effort to control the spread of COVID-19 cases. Less than a week later, on the 5th of July, the Victorian Premier Dan Andrews announced a hard lockdown of nine public housing estates. The residents in these housing estates in the suburbs of Flemington and North Melbourne were effectively placed in detention in their own homes without warning for up to 24 days with a large police presence. In today's show, we first hear from Tigist Kabidi, counsellor and volunteer at AMSA Youth Connect about what was happening in the housing estates after the lockdown was announced. I then speak to Tamar Hopkins, lawyer and researcher in the area of police accountability and racial profiling, about the history of policing of the residents in the affected suburbs. Please be aware that this show was recorded at a time when the residents in these estates were in lockdown and the situation continues to evolve rapidly. Please also be aware that today's show contains descriptions of police brutality. If this type of content is a trigger for you, please contact Lifeline on 131114 or lifeline.org.au. So my name is Tigis Kibidi. I'm a community volunteer down at AMSA in North Melbourne. My background is in mental health and um, therapy. So, have you been talking to the residents much since the um, hard lockdown was imposed? So, since the hard lockdown has been imposed, residents have been able to communicate with their, the people who are not locked down. So, um, they've been able to call us, they've been able to um, send us messages. We currently have a, uh, a order list going on for particular orders for um, residents in all the flats. So, we've got special orders going through as well as generic bags going through as well. So we're able to communicate with them quite quickly. And we're also able to communicate with their family and friends who are not locked down, who the residents might not have our details and their family are either dropping off supplies or coming here specifically to speak on their behalf. And so what have the residents been telling you? Essentially, um, the, the information that we're getting from the residents and the information that we are also getting as well going up to the flats is that there are inconsistent practices going aboard, um, whether it's you're in North Melbourne, between North Melbourne flats, whether you're in Flemington and between the four Flemington flats, there's inconsistent practices occurring. Um, the residents are, are, are uninformed as to what's happening. Um, we are receiving inconsistent responses. We are delivering food as much as we can 
that it's completely dependent upon the individual who happens to be at the building and what their responses are instead of a organised logistical response from the government. So as a result, the residents were unable to receive food and essential items in particular flats or the food and items that they did receive were culturally inappropriate, they were expired, it was left outside, frozen items had become unfrozen because they'd been left outside for so long. Um, and as a result, res- residents are more likely to trust and more likely to engage in community-based resources than they are from a, a government or a state response. Mm. And have any of the government workers um, or people who are stationed there offered to speak directly with the residents or with community groups like yours? So the people who are stationed there are constantly trying to speak to us. Mm. However, the difficulties that we're having is nothing is able to be actioned. So they are aware of us. We are standing right in front of the North Melbourne flats. There's there's no lack of information in regards to um, what we're doing and how we are doing it. The, the issues are occurring in regards to a speedy and timely response. Whether it's DHHS, whether it's VigPol, um, there's so much bureaucratic red tape that exists. And as a result, the, the people who are mostly impacted by these are the residents and the community responders who, are, who have supplies, who have difficulty bringing them up. Yeah. In your opinion, what should have happened? What could the government have done instead? So in my opinion, and in, in the opinions um, that uh, Voices from the Block are sharing, is that all public housing estates should not have been treated discriminatorily. They should be treated like their post-closed area and, be, and they should be treated equally. They should withdraw the 500 police in there and actually place healthcare, social responses that are more appropriate to a public health crisis. They should be implementing infection prevention measures as well as ensuring the um, the financial, mental and physical safety of the residents. And the only way that you can do that is withdraw these hard lockdown measures and treat them like the rest of the citizens in their area. Mm. And what are the residents' demands currently? So currently our key demands are Firstly, for all public housing estates to be placed under stage three COVID-19 restrictions, mm-hmm. like our neighbours, so we can leave our homes for work, for education, exercise, Medicare, caregiving, shopping and other supplies. Secondly, for the Victorian government to withdraw the all 500 police officers and authorise officers from the inside of all the public housing estates. Thirdly, the Victorian government to implement infection prevention measures such as regular disinfection and cleaning of communal areas Also, for the Victorian government to set up testing sites in walking distance of the public housing estates instead of the four-year inside public housing estates building in order to prevent the risk of spreading COVID-19. And lastly, for the Victorian government to coordinate services in support of current community-led activities that are responding to the residents' food, medical, financial, mental health and social service needs. And for the general public, how can they support the residents? The way that the general public can support the residents is to amplify the voices of the residents, is to continuously amplify their detention and how their wrongful treatment. Material aid, we have enough support. Volunteers, we have enough support. Right now, we are saying that we need to be treated in a culturally and humanitarian response. So 
they want to be treated exactly like their other residents. So what the, um, the general public can be can do is call their members of parliament. They can call um, any politician that they are aware of, um, advocate as much as that they can. They can protest. They can use the, the privileges and rights that they have that these residents don't have to uplift their voices to ensure that their voices are heard. On community stations around Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. Don't forget you can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You just listened to a conversation I had with Tigist Kabedi about what was going on in the housing estates that were placed in lockdown. You can follow Tigist on Instagram and her handle is at the coloured therapist. In the next part of today's show, I speak to Tamar Hopkins, lawyer and researcher in the area of police accountability and racial profiling, about the history of policing of the residents in the affected suburbs. Here's Tamar. My name's Tamar Hopkins. I'm currently a student at UNSW doing a PhD in in racial profiling, police accountability, and I have worked at the Flemington Legal Centre from 2005 to 2016. So, Tamar, you've done a lot of work as a police accountability lawyer with the residents in Flemington and Kensington. What is the history of policing in these suburbs? Yeah, so there's quite a history of policing in this area. The the legal centre started in the 80s and it really, the issue of policing was, was alive and well then. One of the first pieces of work that the legal centre was engaged in was working with the families of for young men who had been shot by police. These were, the families were all connected into the Flemington and Kensington area um, and there was uh, a huge amount of work done at that time to try and hold the police accountable, to try and um, force the coronial inquests to to hold the, those police accountable to um, ensure that uh, they were charged, the police were charged. In fact, there was um, one of the, um, one of the police officers involved was was charged, but the charge murder charges were eventually dropped by the DPP in very kind of political circumstances. But it was a, a huge campaign that happened in the 80s and that led to some really big changes to Victoria Police. It led to Project Beacon, which was kind of the first time that Victoria Police had kind of addressed its issue of excessive use of force and um, the use of firearms and uh, introduced the safety first principles. So that was a really huge piece of work that the Flemington and Kensington community and the legal centre were engaged in back then. How effective that work was is obviously, you know, uh, maybe there have been less police shootings since then, but certainly there's been a whole lot of issues around excessive use of force and there certainly has been some police shootings, so we still have issues. None of these issues have been resolved, but what, what the work of the centre and the community has, have done have really highlighted the problems, and I think that's a continuing theme. So when I started work at the Flemington Legal Centre, the big issue facing the community then was excessive force being constantly stopped and at this stage that the targets of this kind of policing were young African and uh, Afghani youth from the North Melbourne and Flemington flats who were being um, assaulted in public places, hit by torches, strip searched in public, uh, having raids conducted on their houses, being hit inside police stations when they refused to uh, agree to being photographed. Like a huge range of 
uh, be, being told to get back to Africa, having police stand on their heads while waiting for divvy vans to turn up and smoking a cigarette is one account. So just, just extraordinary accounts of dehumanisation, brutality, discrimination, racism directed against these these communities. Mm-hmm. And what was really extraordinary was not only the policing of these communities, but the community response um, was, you know, really profound. And and I, I'm kind of looking back on that now and just remarking on the incredible strength and resilience of this community to stand up again and again mm-hmm. to um, the, the kinds of policing that they face. So at that point, we went through lodging masses of complaints and trying to get the system to hold the police to account and that broke down. Those complaints were all investigated internally by police. A lot of those young people were charged and so we had to do criminal defences and get a lot of the charges dismissed. We tried the complaint system. That didn't hold the police to account. We tried civil litigation and we also tried a major race discrimination claim so, so they were the legal avenues, but at the same time, the community itself was engaging in huge ac- activism. When when a person was taken to the police station, there'd be um, calls made and um, people would gather and outside the station and demand that the person be released. There was a lot of countering the narrative that going on in the media. The police were going to the media and just saying these scandalous things like, you know, 50 Africans with machetes, like just mm. totally scandalous kinds of allegations being made against the community that they were having to respond to. So, yeah, it was it was quite an extraordinary time and it was another time when there was a real shake-up in terms of what the police did in, in responding. They introduced Australia's first anti-racial profiling policies and kind of reorganise their, their a department to start kind of focusing on issues around targeted communities. However, the reality is that the racial profiling policy that they introduced was in fact not even as good as our Federal Race Discrimination Act, so mm-hmm. it held the police to a lower standard than, than the law actually holds them to. Mm-hmm. And in fact there's been less transparency as a consequence of the reforms that the police introduced. So, but I guess what it did do is put the issue of racial profiling very firmly on the public agenda, really for the first time in, in such a way in Australia. There, obviously, there's been massive Indigenous activism around policing issues for ever since invasion, but this was the first activism by by a migrant community who'd been facing over policing and and describing the situation as racial profiling so so I think you know that was like quite extraordinary and I guess now looking back looking at the current situation and seeing again the community come together in in such a you know powerful way and now demanding that the that 500 police that are currently around their their flats be be removed and, that, and there's a whole new way of dealing with their needs that, that is not about drawing on the police straight away so so i think yeah i what i what i think we can really see in the flemington and kensington community is profound activism and resistance by the community in responding to to unfair policing and i suppose 
you know, for a lot of people, this has been framed as public health response. It makes sense to them that there's so many people in high density areas and therefore the only way to deal with this crisis is to keep them there. But given the context of whatever you've just described to me, that seems really inappropriate. What do you think could have happened instead? Yeah, I, I just, I am so staggered that the first thing Daniel Andrews does is declare that there will be unprecedented police presence on the estate when he introduces these lockdown measures. And it just seems to me to be completely willfully ignorant of that history of the community's experience with the police. And that while this may be a particularly unprecedented set of events, the high level of policing on the estate is certainly not unprecedented. So, yeah, look, look, there are so many alternatives, I think, that could have occurred. I mean, there are lots of things being raised by the community. I think it would have been quite open to the government to introduce the same lockdown measures over the estates that were being introduced in the North Melbourne and Flemington area. That is that people be restricted to their homes except for the four reasons. And that really, if, if there's an issue about the high rise being less harder for people, people to socially distance, then some really some measures like, you know, massively increasing the level of cleaning going on in the, um, in the corridors, in the lifts, provision of masks to everyone, provision of protective equipment and gear so that people could move around in a safe way. So there were all sorts of alternatives to, to coming up with this kind of measure. And I think it really speaks to the government's lack of faith in the capacity of this community to look after itself and they had been looking after themselves for months around this health crisis mm-hmm. and were were and are absolutely on board with the need for protection so so i think yeah this was very paternalistic and and frankly a racist approach to dealing with these communities do you have any particular concerns in relation to the detention guidelines well, absolutely. Uh, the, the guidelines say that you're not allowed to leave unless, even for medical emergencies, unless you have authorisation. There is obviously a, a mechanism to get that authorisation, but how are residents to actually get, um, get authorised to leave in med- medical emergencies? And just, I mean, this, there's all sorts of medical emergencies that one can envisage going on from mental health emergencies, family violence emergencies, just thinking about the uh, the uh, instant detox that a whole lot of alcohol-dependent and drug-dependent people would have to be going through right now and, you know, who is looking after the physical and mental effects for them in dealing with this. So it, it seems to me that it really hasn't been set up in any way that folk puts the needs, the health needs of those residents first. And, yeah, so it, the other very concerning thing is that suddenly we have a, a two-tiered state of citizenship in, a, in Victoria. We have a group of people, 33,000 um, people who are suddenly detainees and have lost all rights. And that there's something profoundly problematic in in the way that this they have been imprisoned without the kind of protection that even people in the prison system face 
when they are taken in. So, yeah, look, it's, it's hugely concerning. Women on the line. You've done a lot of litigation work in the area of racial profiling by Victoria Police. And in 2015, Victoria Police actually made some changes to the police manual to prohibit racial profiling by its officers. And there's been talk of all this anti-bias training that's been provided to officers since then. But that's the starting point. And that was five years ago. And the understanding is that racism is something that has to be trained away from the people who have quite a lot of power and discretion. What does that suggest about the kind of policing that the state requires? Well, it, it implies that the issue of, of racism and structural, structural racism with the way that the police respond to the community is an issue of personal bias. It individualises the issue of institutional racism in a way that profoundly misunderstands the true dynamics and causes of the the institutional racism that is um, rolled out in police activities. I think it's, you know, it is this way of taking, of doing, doing nothing to solve a, a problem that is structured into the very function of policing in the first place. And it lets, it, it's kind of this option that looks palatable, ticks kind of boxes for those who don't understand what institutional racism actually looks like. I am appalled really by the response of Victoria Police to the issue of racial profiling in, in that it's all it has really looked at is these issues of, of training. What is required is, you know, fundamentally different. And, I mean, there's there are gradients of what is required and ultimately the police institution as itself, that the function of policing racialised communities is is problematic and points at the need for an entire new strategy entire new way of, of organising the state, of, of working with people around issues, a, a new way of looking at, at problems in society. But there are also steps that could have been taken and should be taken while there is still a, a police force that structures the opportunity for racism out of everyday policing. Mm-hmm. And some of those opportunities are around restricting the power of police to interact with individuals without reasonable grounds to do so. So at this point in Victoria, the police are entitled to go up to anyone they want and start questioning them, um, interrogating them without any kind of threshold. And they will claim that that's what they do, they, they, that's how they get to know the community which is a deep misunderstanding of how the community, how it's experienced being questioned by a police officer. It's experienced immediately as a detention and as something that is coercive and that there is no choice involved. And that lack of understanding the, the instantly coercive nature of the citizen police interaction on the street, that lack of understanding impacts police policy, it impacts judicial decision-making in this country. There's a permissiveness around around policing in this country 
that completely misunderstands the, the relationship and the experience of policing. We have witnessed that when the COVID pandemic started and police were given the opportunity to fine people, certainly the data in New South Wales was showing that they were fining communities of colour, not white communities. And that really shows how the policing strategies and operational strategies in those areas were so entirely different. We see entirely different operations going on in in racialized communities than white communities. So it's those kind of structural shifts of going, why is one set of operations so different to another? That's where we start to actually unpick and manage racial profiling, not the kind of anti-bias training that you've just pointed to as, as being the Victoria Police response. And I guess in the context of, you know, Black Lives Matter movement that's been happening in the US and all of that, and there's lots of conversations about how maybe it's time to start thinking about defunding the police. What do you think that would look like here? Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? I, I find it extraordinary that Daniel Andrews and the government can snap their fingers and bring 500 armed police to bear, mm-hmm. and yet they cannot snap their fingers and bring 500 social workers, health workers, cleaners, the, the kind of actual support and care that people really need. So it really exposes the way our state is heavily reliant on policing as its primary response to anything. So if it's a health issue, whatever, police are the way the government responds. And this really exposes the importance of a new way of looking at the way the state operates. And rather than a a response to criminalise and detain and instead to to actually look at a way of really supporting people, working with communities to get the outcomes that those communities, working in partnership with communities. And so, yeah, I mean, there's there's so many alternative options here that didn't require a policing response. And, um, yeah, I I mean, really, (laughs) it's I think this is one of the clearest examples of the need to defund police and redirect those funds into alternative strategies that prioritise the needs of community first, mm-hmm. work in partnership with the community. Uh, so, yeah, and you're right to bring up the context of the Black Lives Matter movements where this is the first time it's been kind of mainstream to talk about defunding police across Australia. The first time there's been, you know, mainstream media um, in a way that I have not seen before and... Mm-hmm this was a flashpoint where the government could have taken a different approach. The opportunity was there and it has failed to do that. But I mean, really that's what we're looking for in the future now. This is, and the demands of the residents at the moment are really speaking to that alternative strategy. And that's all for Women on the Line today. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Women on the Line is a national women's current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women and gender non-conforming broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The theme music for Women on the Line is produced by Ripley Cavera. 
Women on the Line programs can be downloaded from www.3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. See you next time.